We're in a series on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and today we're going to see how the Holy Spirit brings assurance to believers. That, that sort of that deep inner certainty that you are a child of God and that God loves you and that he delights in you and that you're secure and that you are destined for glory and safe in his hands. We're going to look at that theme of assurance, and so we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. So if you have got a Bible, could you turn there? And we're going to be reading from that in a moment. In 1662, one of the most brilliant minds in human history died. His name was Blaise Pascal. He was a French, all kinds of things, a French mathematician, inventor, philosopher, physicist. He proved that vacuums exist. He invented the calculator. He developed a probability triangle that people still use in maths today. He made breakthroughs in the study of fluids and pressure. And to this day, we still measure pressure in Pascal's. We refer to Pascal's wager and Pascal's triangle and Pascal's theorem. In fact, if you go right now and Google the phrase greatest geniuses of all time, because I did it the other day, you'll find Pascal's face appears in the top 20. He's, he's just one of the, alongside, you know, Leonardo and Aristotle and all these people, and he's just one of those incredibly brilliant people. But he was also a creative and passionate Christian theologian, wrote an extraordinary book of Christian apologetics called The, the Pensée, The Thoughts, and remarkable man. And when he died, his servant was sorting through his clothes. I mean, obviously a few days later, servant sorting through his clothes, and he finds, sewn into a coat that Pascal often used to wear, he finds this thing sort of sewn into it, and he, so he breaks the seal and tries to work out what it is, pulls it out, and finds a parchment and a very faded piece of paper. And the parchment and the paper both say exactly the same thing on them. They both got the same text written on both of them. So it's written twice, sewn into the coat of this brilliant thinker. And it's a, it's a description of his experience of the assurance of the Holy Spirit. And this is what it says. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd of November, Feast of St. Clement, from about half past 10 in the evening until about half past midnight, fire. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, not of the philosophers and intellectuals, certainty, certainty, feeling, joy, peace. The God of Jesus Christ. Righteous Father, the world hasn't known you, but I have known you. Oh, joy, 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 tears of joy. And so it goes on. Now, I mention that partly because there are people who think that that kind of deep, intense, passionate, emotional experience of the Holy Spirit is not for serious thinkers. That basically you can be a, an intellectual or a deep feeler, but you can't be both. You have to choose. You, you either can be a, a passionate person or a profound person. You can either be exuberant or an expert. Yet Pascal is both. He, he is a brilliant thinker. He's an extraordinary intellectual, one of the greatest human minds, I think, to have ever lived. And yet, at the same time, he's this incredibly exuberant, emotional man who encounters the assurance of God in a way that causes him to cry tears of joy, write it down, and sew it into his coat so people only found out about it after he died. So I mention it partly to help you see, yeah, exuberance and expertise need not be enemies. In fact, you can, they can come together beautifully in a man like this. But I also mention it because that depth of certainty, what he called certainty, certainty, feeling, joy, peace, that is what theologians often call assurance. That 
inner certainty that God loves you, that you're his child, that he's going to carry you through and reassure you with delights and fill you with his spirit. That's called assurance. And the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, was also a man of expertise and exuberance, incredibly passionate and profound, the Apostle Paul was devoted to this doctrine as well. He wrote about it in arguably the greatest chapter of the greatest letter that he ever wrote, Romans chapter 8. And this is what he said in Romans 8. We're going to read it together, beginning at verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that's seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of God. This passage contains basically three clear paragraphs. There's a really clear flow of thought. And each one of these paragraphs involves a cry of the Spirit. I don't know if you noticed that. The Spirit's doing a lot of crying out in these these verses. I don't know if you noticed that as we read it. In the first paragraph, there is a cry of adoption. The Spirit, Paul calls him the Spirit of adoption by whom we cry Abba, which is just a, a child's word for Dada. You hear people, if you travel to Israel today, you hear people shouting Abba, Imma, Dada, Mama. And it's a word that people carry on using as they get older. So it's not quite like our daddy, but a bit similar. It's like a very, papa might be a a Mediterranean equivalent. So there's a cry of adoption. Then in the second paragraph, there's a cry of hope. 
And Paul describes, it says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. So there's this childbirth labor pain type cry that we'll come back to in a moment, which is not so much a cry of Abba, but a cry of Arr! but desperate anticipation mingled with the anguish of living through a time of pain and turbulence, like pregnancy or labor. And then thirdly, there's a cry of prayer, verses 26 to 30. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that are too deep for words. That The Spirit's prayer life is filled with almost these deep visceral noises which can't quite be rendered into ordinary English or Greek or whatever it is. And each of those three cries reflects a very primal expression of emotion. A baby crying for its father, its papa, its dada. A woman crying out in labor in the delivery suite. They're very emotionally rich cries that the Spirit has on our behalf. And each of them is intended to give to us, to give to you, as our assurance as believers. The certainty that God loves you and that he is going to carry you safely through to glory. Let's start with the first one the cry of adoption. Verses 15 to 17. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. When I was 21, I, I did a gap year in the church in Eastbourne, which is where our families still live. And I was warned in advance when I went to work there that the pastor, who was this quite, quite sort of intense guy from the Downham Estate, actually, um, but he would, he, he would always come up to sort of young men, particularly, get in their face, sort of give them a bit of a shove and say, how do you know you're saved? How do you know you're saved? It, that was one of the things he would do. And so I was kind of prepared for this. I knew it was going to happen because people had told me. And so I knew, I knew my Bible enough at that age to, to come to this passage and go, I think I'm, when he does that, I'm going to play the Romans 8 card and see if it works. Well, I'm going to, so he came to me and he said, how do you know you're saved? And I said, the Holy Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. And I was worried, is that going to, and he goes, yeah, yeah, that's all right, that's it. And then he went on and harassed someone else. I thought, okay, I've passed the first test. He believes I am actually a believer. But actually, I, I learned something in that encounter, that the way in which for Paul, and obviously for this pastor, the way in which we know we're children of God, in part comes from the inner witness of the Spirit assuring me that I am a child of God, as, it, as Paul says in Romans 8, 15 to 17. And Paul says the Holy Spirit bears witness. He, he's like, our, our spirit is going, I, I think I'm a child of God. And then the Holy Spirit along with our spirit goes, yes, you are. And by the, by the Holy Spirit, we then cry out this beautiful word, Abba, Father, I know I'm your child. He, he give, the Spirit gives us an inner conviction that God loves us as his kids. Now, I have two sons. And I, I'm quite, I'm quite a... I don't know. I'm quite an effusive, and I, I, think, I hope quite an affectionate person. I'm quite huggy and quite, you know, with my kids, I'm very huggy and kissy and ruffle tumbly, and I tell them I love them every day. But they're increasingly embarrassed when I do it in public. So, you know, you take your, so when you first take your four-year-old to school, they don't like, oh, I love you. And but now he's seven, and he's walking into school, he's like, Shh. he just really doesn't, he sees me in the queue, and he's like, Shh. He just is a bit embarrassed that I'm going to be too affectionate and exuberant in front of his friends, which is fine. But 
later in the day, in the evening, as they're about to go to bed, my boys, have, they have nowhere to hide, right? There's no friends. They can't say they're embarrassed because there's no one else around. It's just maybe me and them. Maybe my older boy, who's 14, comes into the room and says goodnight to us, and he can't escape. At this point, I'm like, come here. Big hug. I kiss him. I just ruffle his hair, rough and tumble, pushing him, tickling him, like very physical with him to, you know, play fights. And I'm trying to reassure him. I love you. And he's at that point, it's so often a mixture of, hey, I know, Dad. I know. I love you, too. And sometimes, oh, Dad! You know, that kind of... Push, almost pushing back, like, I know this, I know it so much that I don't even need you to tell me. Now, why do I do that? Why do parents often do that? I think one of the reasons we do it is because we know that the phrase, I love you, isn't enough to convince us that we're loved. Because the words can be cheapened by overuse in the world. And some, sometimes people will say them and then will do things that reveal to us that they didn't love us as much as they claimed to. That's very painful for people. So one of the ways in which, as what you're trying to do as a parent, isn't it? And others will do it differently, but you're trying to communicate to them so that they know deep down in their boots, these are not just words. You're trying to bear witness to your words with signs of love or demonstrations of affection, which in my case might be physical, so that they know deep down that what they're saying with your mouth is actually true. Well, that's what, for Paul, that's what God is doing when he sends the Holy Spirit. He's sending the Holy Spirit so that it's not simply that God says, I love you. It's not even just, and it sounds weird to talk like this, it's not even just that God says, Jesus has died for you to prove that I love you. It's that he also sends the person of the Holy Spirit into our hearts to witness with us that God loves us and to cry out on our behalf, Abba Father, so that we really know. And I kind of wonder, that phrase when, when it says we cry out Abba Father, is that meant, as I initially read it, as a cry of celebration? Like, Abba, Father, isn't it great you're my dad? Or is it perhaps even meant like the way my son says it to me? Dad, oh, Dad, I know, oh, Dad, oh, Dad. Is that what we, in, a, in effect, in the spirit, saying, Dad, oh, God, Dad, yeah, I know you love me. I've really got it now because you've told me so many times and you've proved it to me with these signs and demonstrations of affection through the person of the Holy Spirit. I don't know. Take it or leave it, really. Paul doesn't elaborate, but I know that this heartfelt cry by and from the person of the Holy Spirit is a gift to us because God knows that left to our own devices, we will relate to him as fearful slaves. And God doesn't want that for us. He doesn't want it for you. He knows that if you were just left to kind of think, God, creator, me, person, creature, okay, well, I better, I better be on my best behavior and serve him like a servant. He says, but you didn't receive that spirit. You didn't receive the spirit of fear to go back to slavery. You received the spirit of adoption as children by whom you cry, Abba, Father. And if you're a child, he says, then you're an heir, an heir of God together with Christ. And so the Holy Spirit comes firstly to bring a cry of adoption deep within us that we may know to our boots that we are children of God and deeply, deeply loved and held in deep affection by the creator of the universe. Now that's pretty wonderful, I hope, I think it is. But it's not the only cry of the Spirit in this passage. And Paul then moves from a child crying Abba to a woman crying Ah! In, or whatever it is, didn't sound quite like that in my experience, but you know, um, or in my wife's experience, I should say, but <laughs> I was there. But a woman crying out in the pain of childbirth. 
But interestingly, when as Paul describes the cry of pain in childbirth, he doesn't just describe it as a cry of pain, but it, well, actually as a cry of hope. And of course, labor is one of those moments where the, the experience of pain and the experience of hope collide. They become one and the same cry. So cry almost of, you could call it eager anticipation, you could call it utter agony, and of course, in a way, it's both, that labor pains are both anticipatory and anguished. This is what he says, verse 18, to set up the, the image he's about to use. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. If you hang them in the balance, the glory is so much bigger than the suffering. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay or to corruption and obtain the freedom of the children of God and the glory of the children of God. What he's saying there is basically, this present age is a period of eager and hopeful waiting and creation itself is longing for the day when it gets set free from this world of corruption and death into glorious freedom. The world is now, right now, this world, the trees, the oceans, the mountains are pining, Paul says, for the day when, it will be, when they will be set free from bondage and death and futility and suffering and captivity, which are all part of our experience now, one day they will be abolished. When Jesus returns, they will be driven out never to return and sorrow and sighing will flee away. That's what Paul is talking about. And then he applies it to the cry of the Holy Spirit, the cry of hope. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation's like a woman in labor, just breathing through the pain. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. So Paul is describing the current created order, again, the trees, the oceans, the puffins, the mountains, whatever, as like a woman in labor, crying out in a mixture of pain and hope for the life to come. So the world is simultaneously crying out, this is agony and new life is coming. So that's what the world is saying in Paul's picturing of things in this passage. That the world is saying, oh, this is so painful. Death is always here. Hurricanes and earthquakes and destruction and disease and all of these horrible things that I hate. I don't want them to be here. And one day they won't be because new life is coming. Oh, Lord, hasten the day. That's what creation in this image is saying, like a woman in labor, panting and breathing through the pain. It's like, oh, oh. But new life is coming. And that's why I'm here. And I've got to keep my eyes on that future in order to get through the pain of the present. That's what creation is doing. And then Paul says, by the Spirit, we are too. That's what you and I experience as well. We, he says, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait. We, by the Spirit, are also crying out, this is agony. I hate this. I hate the reality of relational breakdown and cancer and death. I wish there were no funerals. I wish we didn't need hospitals. I wish that we didn't need divorce lawyers. I hate these features of an agonizing broken world. And yet I know that new life is coming and I'm breathing through the pain of the agony, fixing my eyes on the fact that new life is coming. And in a moment, a head will emerge and then new life and then new creation will come out and I'll be able to celebrate the new and not have any regard for the old. The spirit 
takes hold of our cries of anguish and turns them into a cry of hope. New life is coming. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit to you, that he cries out, Abba, Father, but he also transforms the cries of anguish we experience into cries of hope for the new life to come. Because we have the first fruits of the Spirit, the first signs of life from that resurrected world, the first fruits will come through, we know the rest of the crop is going to come. Resurrection will come. And because of that, we know the redemption of our bodies is on its way. So in a sense, you could see the Holy Spirit, not just like someone crying out, Abba, Father, but like a midwife, with you in the delivery suite, holding your hands, saying new life is coming, encouraging you, urging you to persevere, keep pushing, this anguish is going to be worth it. The sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory, the Holy Spirit, as your midwife is saying in the delivery suite. I know it's painful, but hang in there. Redemption is coming. We are going to get through this together. So there is a cry of adoption and there is a cry of hope. And then finally, there is a cry of prayer. The Holy Spirit brings assurance to us, not just by crying adoption and hope, but by crying out in prayer. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Do you ever find yourself so weak and so floundering in the pains and anguishes of this present time, the troubles of this present moment, that you don't even know how to pray? You ever have that? I do. Most of us do, I think. Paul certainly did, because he's talking about himself here. The Spirit helps us. We don't know how to pray. It's so hard, this, this labor that we're in, in this life. Yes, it's wonderful to cry out, Abba, Father, and it's wonderful to have the cry of hope, but it's really hard, this life sometimes, and that's why the Holy Spirit comes to us to help us pray, even though we don't know what to say. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit knows the mind of God and prays accordingly. So, for example, in the last two weeks, I found it really hard to know how to pray for what's going on in Israel and Gaza. I'm like, I know, I know I want peace and justice. I want all of that, but I just, I don't know how to pray for this. This is so confusing and so difficult. And often I just might find myself repeating, Lord, please help or, Father, just have mercy. Oh, oh, sometimes I just, oh, God, would you do something? I don't know what it is, but sometimes I'm speaking in tongues. But some, somewhere you're saying, I don't have the words. And I, at that point, I need the Holy Spirit, my friend, my comforter, my assurer, to come alongside me and pray on my behalf, to turn my, with groanings too deep for words, to say, Lord, I don't know how to say this, but I want to trust that you'll hear my heart and that the Holy Spirit will help give voice to these deep feelings I have as I look at the world around me and the mess that it's in. Or I look back 10 years ago to my own life where my children were regressing and having a very hard time and waking up at ridiculous o'clock for year year after year, and I just couldn't understand why God wouldn't make them sleep. I know it sounds silly, but when you're that tired, you're just like, I can't. I don't understand, Lord, why you wouldn't. And they'd just often just be sitting there by the bedside or outside their room hearing them what, kicking off in the middle of the night, just thinking, Lord, please, 
oh God, please do something. And that's all you've got, right? Nothing else but that. Too tired to pray coherently. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us in those moments. With Mary, maybe you're in one now. A moment where for what, it might be much more serious than sleeplessness. Might not be as serious as missile attacks, I don't know. But the Holy Spirit intercedes for you with groanings too deep for words. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All oh, your waves and breakers have crashed over me. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. And for some of us today, the, the aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry that is going to be most precious to us in this probably this whole series is the assurance that he's praying for us. And he's with us in the delivery suite, holding our hand and saying, I know this is awful, but I'm going to hold your hand and we will get through this. And in the meantime, I'm going to cry out on your behalf for help. Like Jesus Christ in Gethsemane, the Spirit is praying for you that your faith would not fail. Brothers and sisters, when, when God adopts us into his family, he pours out his Holy Spirit into our hearts in abundance. And the Spirit within us cries out, Abba Father, in, a, in assurance, in adoption, in hope, and in prayer for you. You are loved, the Holy Spirit says. You are secure. You are held. You are going to make it. It is hard. Redemption is coming. When you are weak, I am strong and I'm going to carry you because God works all things together for good for those who love him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now in hope and in assurance of being children of God in hope of redemption and asking that you would pray for us. Lord, we come to you and desire that you would move among us and that as we sing in a moment and as we pray for one another, that your spirit would move and would confirm deep down in our boots that these things you have spoken from your word are true. Lord, that you'd help us feel the realities that your word speaks about. You would send your spirit to, in, in fresh waves to those of us in the church who really need your assurance today that as we pray in a moment, you would bring your power to bear to convince us and to help us experience and feel the goodness of your love for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.